0: If you have your copy of God's Word, if you turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, we'll be taking our text from this morning. Romans chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 29 this morning, Lord willing. On this message I've titled, Is God Unfair? Romans chapter 9. And we're going to read verse 14, then we're going to pray and get right into the message. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God God forbid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning. We need your help. Lord, help us be able to preach this morning. Lord, fill us full of the wisdom and power and spirit that only that you can provide. Lord, enlighten us today to your word. And may you receive honor and glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we pick back up here where we left off last week, we looked at verse 13 last week and that's the only one we were able to cover uh, and that, of course, talked about God, and uh, it, it talked about His, uh, how He loved Jacob but hated Esau. We talked about that uh, in depth, and we saw several things in that message, and in the uh, what the Bible tells us about God's choosing, God's calling, God's election, God's sovereignty. And so we left off stating the fact that with these things, it's natural for the listeners or those that Paul was. Teaching this doctrine to, to have questions, especially concerning God's fairness in their mind, and that's what Paul does here. He uses this this question as he knows his listeners would do. Paul was very well trained in how to speak and how to uh, uh, deliver God's word to people. He had been trained for years and years and years. Plus, he did have the benefit of the Holy Spirit that was enabling him to understand the things of God. And so his natural way of explaining the Scripture to people was to think about how they would think. And so he he interjected this this question in the middle of this text. He says, what shall we say then? That's what they would say. And so, uh, is there unrighteousness with God? That's going to be the question they had. If God picks and chooses, if he is... Um, uh, if it's his prerogative to hate somebody and love somebody else or, or uh, have one appointed unto election and one not, doesn't that make God unfair? Uh, is he unrighteous in this? And that's the question. Is there unrighteousness with God? And of course, the, the short and easy answer is, as Paul said there, God forbid. In other words, don't even think such a thing. Uh, get that out of your mind. And so what is unrighteousness? Well, it's the opposite of being righteous. <laughs> and of course, being righteous, uh, when it comes to God, means holiness, God's uprightness, God's uh, justification, His moral and high holy standards. That's God's righteousness. There is no, absolute no unrighteousness in God whatsoever. And so that's what Paul wants to prove to them as he takes them back again to the Old Testament, and he explains the things of God. Uh, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he calls the Lord the Righteous One. He said this in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them Also that love his appearing. So God is the only one worthy to judge man for righteousness because he is pure righteousness. And Paul even says there, you know, I I, you know I've finished my course, I've I've kept the faith, I've I've been a soldier for the Lord, and, and when I get to see him face to face, then he's gonna he's got laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And that righteousness only comes from God. We can't earn righteousness. We can't uh, come up with it on our own. If there's any righteousness at all inside of us, it's through him. through Christ is the only righteousness in us. Now uh, the Bible has much to say about God's righteousness versus man's ability to be righteous. Remember what we studied a few weeks ago there in Romans chapter 5. Uh, there in Romans 5:17 through 19. the Bible says, "For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. You see that? The only way a man can have any righteousness is through Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So we have to be made righteous. And we do that through Christ. Now that first man, it talks about how man, uh, the first man there, he, he it was a man of disobedience. And that's referring to Adam. That is uh, what we inherited from Adam's nature. But the second man, the, the the obedient one, the righteous one, he imputes his righteousness into us. And so this is in reference to how all men are unrighteous due to the fall of man, the sin, the original sin. Um, but through the second Adam, and that's what the Bible calls them at times, the first Adam, the second Adam, first man, the second man. There's the the earthly man, and there's the the heavenly man. There's the the unrighteous, and there's the righteous. And this is a comparison between Adam and, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so. It said here that uh, to make a man that this righteousness enabled us to have the gift of righteousness and the free gift, which is freely given to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So uh, that is how we're imputed with righteousness. So in their mind, of course, the Jewish believer and thinker in their mind, uh, if God has turned his back on Israel and he loves some but hates others, I mean, doesn't that show some kind of flaw in God? Doesn't that make him unrighteous? Doesn't that mean he's unfair? Uh, Paul's simple answer, like we said, is God forbid. Uh, But look at verse 15. He goes on to say, For he has said to Moses, now he's going to take them back to the Old Testament. We've been doing this for the last few weeks. I told you in this chapter alone, 16 citations from the Old Testament. And here he does it again, and he's saying, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now again, like last time, Paul references this Old Testament text, for he saith to Moses. Moses being, of course, the, the lawgiver, the one that God gave the law to, and, and Moses delivered it to the children of Israel. And Moses was held in high esteem, you've got Abraham is probably their the the, the father they, they always point to as being the 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 originator of their race and then you've got Moses the lawgiver and so Abraham and Moses is the top two uh, when it comes to the, the Jewish belief or Israelites or Hebrews uh, they look to these two men. And so this is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 33. Now we studied this probably, I don't know, about two months ago or so. Uh, Exodus 33 and 19 the Bible says and he said I will make all my goodness pass before thee and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy and so what's happening here Paul is giving these these uh, Jewish uh, listeners those that he's writing to of course the church at Rome and those that were Jewish listeners and of and, course uh, the Gentile listeners as well, because they understand the history of the Jews and how God separated them as his people. And so this question will naturally come up. Well, it doesn't seem fair that God would do this considering that he chose these people, and yet he's going to turn his back on part of them. Uh, He's only going to uh, save a remnant. He's only going to choose certain ones and and not the others. And so what Paul's doing, he's giving them uh, God's uh, modus operandi. It's his M.O. It's what's, what god is built that's what is built into his nature that he says i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious to and i will show mercy to whom i will show mercy to in other words you don't have one single thing to do with it and that is what we need to remember if you could get this in your head this is going to help you so much you have absolutely nothing to do with your salvation it's nothing to do with you God is the one that enables you to have faith in him. Without God enabling you to have faith in him, you would not have faith in God. So even your salvation, it all boils down to God is the one who enables you to be saved. Man man is dead. Dead things cannot make themselves come back to life. So it requires God bringing a dead man to life. So if you're going to be saved today, God has to enable you to have faith in him. And it's His saving grace and mercy that He allows you to be saved. And so this is always how God operates. He's always done things the same way. Verse 16. So then it is not of Him that willeth, nor of Him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That's what we've been saying. It's not of you that willeth. It's not of you that runneth. It don't matter what you do. It's God that showeth mercy. So you can go around and be the The good doer, you know, all day long, you can, you know, perform every good deed in your mind, and it doesn't matter. God's not going to look at you and say, "Boy, he's really being a good person. I'm going to, I'm going to have mercy on him." No, it doesn't work that way. God chooses who He will to have mercy on, and so Paul's explaining that salvation is completely of God. It's not of man, even though we're saved by faith. God enables you to have that faith. God is the one that calls you, as we mentioned last time you cannot be saved unless the father you have to come through the father that's what jesus says no man can come to the father but by me he said and so it's and i will save those whom the father calleth. and so it's god that does the calling it's god that enables you to have the faith it's god who saves you it's god's righteousness that's imputed in you so if you can ever get that in your head it's not you (laughs) it's not you and so without christ we're dead men walking And we need to become alive. And uh, God's the one that brings men back to life. Those dead things. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That's what the Bible says. It's the gift of God. Not works, lest any man should boast. So think of it this way. The grace is God's. The faith that we have to believe in Him is God's the gift that he gives us. It's God's gift to give. It's not our place to to take a gift. It's it's his place to give the gift. And so he gives it, we receive it, and it's ours. And he is the one that does it. And so, like Paul said in our our text here in verse 16, God is the one that showeth mercy. Alright, now look at Romans 9 and 17. For the scripture saith, okay, here again, Remember what I said last time. Every time you see that phrase, for scripture saith, for you have read, or for it's been said, or whatever. Anytime someone references something that's not written down right here, like you've heard, or it has been said, the scripture saith, look back in in the Bible and find out where it came from. And here he says, the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and on whom he will he hardeneth. Now this is where it really gets difficult for a lot of people. Now wait a minute, you mean God will harden someone? Oh yes, he will. He sure will. He will harden someone's heart to bring glory to himself. And somebody said, well, I don't like that. That sounds like a selfish God to me. Friend, I want you to understand things about God. God is sovereign. He is the, the originator of life, the sustainer of life. He's the taker and giver of life. If at any moment God even thought the thought you know, and, and wanted you just gone, all he has to do is think the thought. He probably wouldn't have to think it. He just, it's, all, it's right there in his infinite mind, and you'd be out of here. And so, once again, Paul takes them back to the Old Testament. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Now he's, he's referencing in Exodus again. Exodus chapter 9 verses 13 through 16 is what he's talking about. And this is what it says. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth for now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth here it is verse 16 and in in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth and the Bible tells us that God hardened pharaoh's heart and he did uh pharaoh had no he had no ability to have a softer heart he, he couldn't do it because god hardened it and god knows your very thoughts your the recesses of your mind the, in your heart he knows all about us pharaoh is never going to be a believer he is going to have to See the power of God, though. And that's what God's doing. He's using Pharaoh. God will use anything, anyone, at any time to fulfill his purpose. And that's what he did with Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. And uh, you you know his ending. And so God in his sovereignty uses Pharaoh for his own glory. He hardened his heart. Pharaoh had no choice or decision. No free will. And uh, that's just the truth. And you better believe that all the earth, when all this happened, these plagues came upon Egypt, they saw what was going on, God was glorified in all the earth. They understood his power. He said, for I'll show thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. You better believe it. When all this happened, everyone on the face of the earth was saying, do you hear what happened? The God of the Hebrews, do you see what he did? Do you see how he did Egypt, the most powerful Nation on the face of the earth, and how God, the God of the Hebrews, did that. And so God's glory was declared. Verse 19, back in Romans chapter 9. Here Paul is again, he's bringing up the question they would have Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? <laughs> All right, so the natural rebuttal here for Paul, is uh, the listeners, is going to have is that if God chooses and he purposes everything that happens, then why does he blame man when man sins? If God is in control of everything and he's sovereign, why does he blame us for being sinners? Why would he blame those who resist his will if he's going to bring glory to him? If they resist his will like Pharaoh did and, and God shows his power through him then wouldn't that glorify him then why does he blame us when we sin and it's the same question that's being asked all through the ages Romans 3 and 7 for if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory why yet am I also judged as a sinner this is is the question they were asking earlier and in Romans 6 and 1 what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound these were the natural questions that people had. And on each one of these, what is Paul's answer? God forbid. Don't think such a thing. It's out of the question. All right, now look back at Romans 9.20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? You know, this phrase right here in this verse, this first part of it, oh man, who art thou that replies against God? It would be to God that it would be imprinted upon every one of our minds today the truth of what that's saying. Who art thou, man, human, flesh, carnal? Who are you to question God? Who are you to ask such a thing about God? And so why would, you know, we would say something like, Who in the world do you think you are? (laughs) You know, it's what Paul's kind of saying. Who died and made you God? Paul could say. Listen, Paul isn't condemning those that had a natural question about how God operates and how God works. You know, it's not that. He's not putting down those that really have questions about this doctrine he's teaching. But instead, what he's doing is rebuking those who want to use, use God's sovereignty to carry out their own sinful flesh. Uh, they, they think if they can blame God for being unfair here and if I can bring glory to him by sinning then by all means I'm going to just keep on sinning. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so that's who Paul's rebuking here. Who do you think you are? Who died and made you God? And so the people in Paul's day had the same problem that we have in this world today that we live in right now. Man thinks that he is something that he is not. We live in the most conceited, self-centered, selfish culture on ever on the face of the earth. I mean, you thought the Roman culture was bad, and it was. This culture that we live in right now in this Western world, uh, I'm telling you what, friends, it's the, the me, myself, and I uh, culture, and a man thinks he's something that he is not. Uh, I've told this before, I believe, but about 10 years ago, uh, my company used to send me on trade shows for the company. Uh, I had to go set up equipment and all these big shows, electronic shows. We touch touchscreen monitors, and it's my job to set up the booth and to work the booth and all this and answer questions from people. Uh, but there was always several of us who went. All the salespeople went. And so on the average, there was about 25 of us all together at each show. Uh, so like I said, about 10 years ago, we had a different president of our company. And we were in Las Vegas at the G2E trade show. It's one of the biggest electronic trade shows in the world. And uh, on the last night of the trade show, our, the president of our company had reserved a, uh, a room in the top of this Italian restaurant, very expensive place. I mean, I don't know how much our check was that night. I know it was over $6,000. Uh, and you'll know why when I tell you this. But we were seated around these rows of table, all 25 of us. Uh, I was I was kind of in the center on this side. The president of the company was right across the table from me on that side. And then everybody else was gathered around there. And they were bringing out the hors d'oeuvres. They had oysters. And by the way, if you eat raw oysters, you're sick. <laughs> They're terrible. But anyway, they brought out all these raw oysters and, and, and things like this. And then they had the wine glasses on the table and the president of the company, he's sitting there and he's explaining how he ordered the most expensive wine in the house. I mean, I don't know how much it was. It was probably a thousand dollars or more. And here come the waiters and they're pouring wine into all these glasses sitting at our tables. And when they come to mine, I put my hand over it and I said, no, thank you. I said, I'll have a Diet Coke. Well, you can imagine how this went over in, in this kind of environment. And so you would have thought that somebody had killed someone when I said that, and everybody was, and they're all looking at me. And the president of the company sitting straight across from me, and he looks at me, and he says, do you not like wine? And I said, I, I don't drink wine. And before I could say anything else, my immediate supervisor said, he's a preacher, he don't drink anything. He don't drink alcohol, he don't believe in it. And of course, this got chuckles from a lot of people, but the president of the company looks at me, and he said, you know, he said, I respect your beliefs. But I want you to know that I am my own God, and I will do what I want to do, and no one will tell me any different. He said, but I will respect your beliefs. And I had never in my entire life ever heard anything like that from someone. I mean, brought up here in the Bible Belt, if somebody said that (laughs) uh, back in the day, just I don't know, 20 years ago, if you'd ever heard that, you probably got busted in the mouth for saying something like that, uh, right or wrong. But listen, when I heard that uh, 10 years ago, I was amazed that someone could be that way. And what it turns out, he's he was an atheist. But not only did he call himself an atheist, but an atheistic agnostic. Now that is a contradiction of terms in itself, it seems like. But an atheistic agnostic. And I've been doing some research on this, this thought of people. And that is the big thing these days. Uh, what it means is it's someone who doesn't believe in a deity like God. Yet they still are holding that a deity's existence is really unknowable. So there might be a God or there might not be. But I don't believe in God. <laughs> That's their thought process. And so you would be surprised at how many people today are holding to that type of of thought, that that's what they claim to be. You know, we say we're Christian. I'm an atheistic agnostic. And you'll find that most people that claim that title, um, they usually have a high IQ. They're usually really smart people um, when it comes to intellectual things. But when it comes to spiritual things, they're dead as a rock. They might as well be a piece of roadkill out in the middle of the road. That's about all they're good for, because they don't understand the things of God. But yet they think that they uh, want to hold some higher belief system. You know that uh, because they don't believe, or or they won't consider the fact that there is a God over them. That they're their own God, and most of them will say that. Uh the guy that wrote the satanic Bible uh started the, the Church of Satan. The guy that started the Church of Satan, I can't Satan, I can't remember his name. Uh it was said that he claimed to be his own God. Um they said they didn't really worship Satan, but they were their own gods. But that they saw themselves in Satan. Weird. But but like I'm saying here, this culture that we live in is a culture that believes that we are in control of ourselves, that we control what we're going to do. Let me tell you something. You don't have control over the next 10 seconds of your life. Like I was saying earlier, if God chose to take you out, you could go to take a breath and God say, Nope, you ain't taking one. And you would drop dead. Your heart. That beats in your chest. That's what keeps you alive. Your heart pumps blood through your system. That's what keeps you alive. It's like a car engine, and and you, you put the gasoline in, and your the blood's your gasoline, and it keeps that heart pumping and flowing, and and it causes you to be able to move and and think. God could say, heart stop, and you would drop dead. And so that's how much control you have over yourself. And how much is that? None. Doesn't matter and you could be the healthiest person on the face of the earth. Who was the guy that, that uh, Yul Gibbons uh, dropped dead? Was it a heart attack, I believe? Um, there, I don't remember how he died, but he died and he was considered one of the healthiest men on the face of the earth. Maybe he's the one that died on the, on the hoverboard. I, I don't remember one of them did. But listen, you don't have control over anything in your life because God is sovereign. God's in control. All right, now let's get back to Romans 9 and 21. He goes on to say, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel in honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to cho- shows his, uh, show his His wrath and to make his power known, endured mu- with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? So now Paul brings up the references to the potter and the clay. This is a, uh, a age-old story. The Bible talks about it in several places. And this would get their attention because they would know what the Scripture saith concerning the potter and the clay. Listen to Isaiah 64, 6-8. Six but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, our, uh, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there's none that calleth upon thy name that stirth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Verse 8 says, But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Of course, the prophet Isaiah writing this uh, text, the scripture being inspired by God, recognizes that God, the Father, is the potter. And we, the sinner, the lost, the unrighteous, um, that don't call on his name, we don't call on him, we don't stir up to take a hold of him. And so we are simply nothing but the clay in the potter's hands. And he has control over the clay. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, listen to what the Bible says. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and destroy it? If that nation against whom I pronounce turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it? If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good, wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now therefore go to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you, and devise a device against you. Return you now every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet there to the, the land of Judah, and this was right before they went into captivity. Remember the northern kingdom had already been in captivity for over 100 years or more? And uh, then Judah, uh, God had allowed to keep keep going. And then they had turned to such idolatry. And God was telling his man Jeremiah, he says, you're going to tell the people this. At any time, I'm just like that potter. If I choose to destroy the vessel that I'm making, it's in my hands. I have control over you. And if I choose to destroy you, I will destroy you. And we we know what happened. God allowed the enemy to come in and destroy them. And so we all can look at this analogy of the potter and the clay because we are the clay. We have no control over it. We go around bragging about free will all the time. Well, you know, we've got free will. We've got free will this and free will that and free will and all this, this. I think people have taken the meaning of free will to the wrong thought process. Uh, they take it to mean that man has control over every aspect of his life that man can say what he wants to do and what he w- don't want to do that's not how it works friends that is not how it works without the sovereignty of God you could, like I said you cannot breathe your next breath of air it's by God's grace and his mercy that our heart continues to be at any moment he could think the thought and, and you'd be gone from here and where's your free will on that what's well, my free will I'm going to live forever no you're not it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that's judgment. And so it's God's one's to control. And Paul asked his readers a simple question. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The truth is the clay has nothing to say and has no ability to form its own self. The clay is nothing but, but dead mud. That's all the clay is. That's all we are. We're dead mud. We were formed from the dirt of the ground. We're nothing but dead dirt clay. And so the clay is controlled authoritatively by the potter and the potter only. The clay has no say. The clay cannot get off the wheel and say, well, I'm going to make myself a tea kettle or I'm going to make myself a teacup, or I'm going to make myself this and that. No, the clay can't do that. The clay is just there. And the potter is saying, I'm going to make you into this beautiful vessel. Or, you know what? This I don't I don't like this. What if the potter decided he just wants to cast the clay into the fire, let it harden, and then shatter it in a million pieces? That's his prerogative. He's in control. He owns the clay. And so if God decides that he wants to build a beautiful, perfect vessel, and he decides he wants to destroy this one, that's God's prerogative. It's his right. He can decide to mold it however he wants to do it. And he's sovereign. And so if God chooses one and does not choose the other, does that make him unfair? Does that make him unrighteous? No, because he is in total control. And who are we, oh man, to question God? Who are we? Uh, listen, God... Like the Bible said, God loves the world. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I want you to know that God is fair in all matters. And here's how fair He is. Me, knowing the sins that I have committed in my life, the sinful thoughts that go through my head, I do not deserve heaven one bit. I do not. I'll be the first one to tell you that. And I can tell you this. You don't deserve heaven. We're all sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So there's not a single person on the face of this earth who is worthy to be saved. So is God unfair if there's some that he, he says he loves and some that he hates? Is there, if he appoints one into election and one he doesn't, is God unfair? What's not fair is that God saves anybody. It's not fair that I, I'm saved. It's not fair that the sinful world can be saved knowing how wicked it is. It's not fair. But God, in His grace, and His mercy, bestows it upon us. And so that's what's not fair, is that any of us can be saved. God is fair. He's righteous. He's holy. And He expects a holy standard from us as well. Let's go to the in prayer heavenly father god we come to you today thanking you for the message thank you for the truths of your word thank you for showing us god that we have no control god that you control all everything and lord we're just uh, thankful that you saved us god through your grace and your mercy lord that you saved us we don't deserve it lord we all deserve hell God, we're so thankful that you do love us and that you did save us. Lord, I'm praying for that one today that's out there in sin. God, they're, they're wicked. God, may you, may the Holy Spirit convict their heart and show them the need for salvation before it's everlasting too late. Help us, Father, be able to reach them. And we'll give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.